All right, I want you guys to open up to the book of Colossians is what we're going to be taking a look at here this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know we've been going through this book, uh, and we are really actually coming close to the end. And once we finish this book, we're going to be jumping into the Old Testament, taking a look at a story called the book of Hosea. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, it's actually a love story. And uh, so it's, it's actually a great love story. I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a trailer um, to maybe give you a little bit of intrigue to keep you on the seat of your, uh, your you know, edge of your seat, begin to maybe even consider get into it. So it's a love story uh, with a prophet and a, dun, 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 a prostitute. And uh, falls in love with this lady. And sometimes God likes to use stories like this to really show profound parables and stories. And that's what the story of the book of Hosea is all about. So I'd encourage you to uh, begin to even read that book and uh, begin to ask God to speak to your heart through that. So uh, we'll be getting that next uh, in a few weeks. But um, once we get to the conclusion of this, um, then we'll begin to move into that. But right now, what I want to finish up is kind of a little bit of a series or a focal point that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. And the real bigger question that we've been trying to ask is how does the gospel shape us as individuals, but even more beyond shaping us as individuals, how does it shape the various roles that we play in society? Um, one of the things we've been saying all along is that if you're a Christian here today, the gospel does change you individually. So let me, let me try to put it in the context. If you're a Christian, what happened to you is that you got saved, your sins were washed, cleansed, you've been given a hope that one day when you die, you will then go into God's presence and you'll be changed into his likeness, whatever that looks like, and you will await a time called the resurrection. All right, um, when you die, you don't immediately go into the resurrection. That's something yet in the future that will happen one day. We have no idea when. When Jesus comes back. When's that going to happen? I have no clue. But the point of the matter is, is that um, you have all of this hope in you, residing in you right now, if you are a Christian. But um, one of the things with regard to a lot of modern day American Christianity is a tendency is to just simply stop right there on the individual experience of uh, Christianity or salvation and, and conclude right there. Well, it's not inaccurate to um, emphasize the realities of what Jesus has done for you individually. It is inaccurate to stop right there because the gospel actually moves beyond you and goes in and through you to the remaining world. And this is what Paul emphasizes here. It's one of the reasons why Paul basically is going to begin to now move out into some of the larger broader, more encircling roles in culture and society. The three roles that Paul emphasizes are marriage, uh, we saw that a couple weeks ago, family, we saw that last week, and then the workplace, or vocation, we'll be taking a look at that this week. Those are the three larger circles that Paul says, as the gospel changes you as an individual, it will then change you through you to become part of this work of redemption, restoration, I should say, beyond you into some of the other spheres of your life. Your family, in other words, your family will begin to look different. Let me try to put it another way. The culture is not what defines your family. The gospel does. The, 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 the culture is not what defines marriage. The gospel does. The culture is not what defines how you view your work. The gospel does. That's what Paul's saying. And the reality is, is that if you let the gospel begin to define and reshape and remold and reorient you to these areas, things will begin to look different. In other words, a marriage that's reoriented by the gospel will look different than a marriage that has no hope in God. A family that's reoriented and reshaped by the gospel will look differently than a family that has no hope in the gospel 
with regard to God. And a worker, somebody that is on the job or owns a job, owns a business, is an entrepreneur, will treat their business, treat their employees, employees will treat their bosses differently than those that have no hope in God. This is the whole point that Paul is making. The gospel changes you individually, but then begins to move beyond you into the various spheres of culture throughout you, family, marriage, and the workplace. So what I want to begin to look at is kind of the passage of this. So let's read. We'll pick it up at chapter 3, verse 22. We'll read down to chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of those areas uh, in the Bible where uh, sometimes chapter breaks don't really make a lot of sense because it doesn't make a lot of sense to put chapter 4 right where it is because there's a continuation of a train of thought that was being wrapped up or finished in chapter 3. But we'll just read from the end of chapter 3, verse 22, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1. And hopefully all of this will make sense as we begin to unpack this. So verse 22 says this. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as being people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So again, Paul spends some time unpacking various roles in which a slave or servant and a master uh, are to operate. And I'll unpack that for you guys in just a moment because I realize to some degree, depending upon how we hear the word slave, most of us, probably all of us, are somehow are, are going to derive our definition of slavery from the North American slave mistreatment in our own country. And, uh, and I'm going to prove to you in a second here that it's actually a false way to kind of uh, apply cultural baggage to a particular word that Paul uses. In other words, when Paul's writing to slaves, he's not in any way, shape, or form thinking about the type of slavery that we saw in America in our culture, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Okay, so with that, I'm going to start by um, going into a quote. It's a quote by a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers. She was an author. She was actually a, um, um, a writer. She was a novelist. I kind of written mystery novels. And, but she had also... Um, was a worker, and she understood a lot of important truths and insights into how Christians should view the workplace. Um, so obviously, she was a Christian, and she wrote a lot about this, had a lot of amazingly insightful things to say. And uh, so this is what she said about work. She says, In nothing has a church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation or the workplace. She has allowed, the work, and, she has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. How can anyone remain interested in religion, which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his or her life? What's really important, I think, insightful with regard to this, is what she's addressing is what she perceived within the church in the day and age in which she had lived, that there was this tendency to sort of secularize certain vocations and then basically, uh, I don't know, compartmentalize in terms of religious vocations, other areas. So in other words, in the day and age in which she was writing, there's a tendency to, for people to say, if you really want to serve God, the way that you serve God is you get a job in a church. You become a children's ministry worker, you become a pastor, a youth pastor, become a secretary in a church. You pick up an instrument and start playing uh, for the church. Make sure that unless you get a paycheck that comes from the church, uh, if, it, if it's not coming from a church, then you are technically not in ministry. And what she's saying, that's a false way to view it. Because of really what Paul's saying is that the gospel not only impacts you and 
pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and all them, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, then the idea is that there shouldn't be a compartmentalization between pastoral ministry or church ministry and the rest of everyone else. Because the reality is that every one of us in this room either has a job or one day will end up get a job. If you're going to school right now, the reason, only reason why you're going to school, the only reason, it's not just the past time or you know, drop $20,000 getting into debt. It's because you want to get a job. That's why you're here. If you're going to Cal Poly or Cuesta, you want to get a job. So your whole idea is to get training to get a job that will one day hopefully be meaningful to you. And what she's basically saying is that there's this tendency to compartmentalize these two things, to separate these two things. That serving God is only relegated to those that are within the ministry. And the rest of y'all just try to fend for yourself and figure life out in the typical challenges of the daily grind. And what she's saying is there is, that is absolutely a wrong way to view the ministry of what God is calling us to do. And again, I think this is absolutely in line and in sync with what Paul's saying. Is that if you're a Christian, yes, the gospel impacts you and affects you as an individual. You're saved. You will go to heaven one day. You have forgiveness of your sins. You have a new identity in Christ. All of those things are absolutely true. But beyond that, the gospel now begins to work through you into all these various spheres of your life. So that if you're a man, you're one day you become a dad, it should change the way that you be, that would change the way that you father. If you're a woman, you're going to become a wife one of these days. It should change the way that you are a mother or a wife. If you're going to get a job one of these days, it will change the way that you live your life, and it causes you to view all of this: family, marriage, and the job, the workplace. All of these as basically individual or, or, or connected, I should say, stages. Uh, and what, I, what I mean by stages is like this stage as an opportunity to make much of King Jesus. So in other words, if we understand the way the gospel is working here, that our marriages basically become a trailer, becomes sort of a snapshot, becomes a preview of what marriage is like with God. That one day God will marry his church. That God, Jesus, is the bridegroom that will marry his bride, the church. That God is a father and that God fathers his children well. That God is a master, that God calls his people, his church, to be servants to him. What type of a master is God to these servants? What type of a father is God to his children? What type of a bridegroom is Jesus to his church? See, the gospel is basically saying is that when it gets a hold of your life, all of these spheres of your life and all of these roles should be so radically influenced and impacted by the gospel that you have all of these unique opportunities to make much of Jesus through these various venues. Does that make sense? So this is why work matters. Because work is a platform. It's a stage. It's a venue for you to make much of Jesus. So if work to you is nothing more than just a daily grind, it's a horrible job, it's something you're bored with, something you dislike, something you find that you're just very dispassionate about, and you complain and grumble and hate it and are always frustrated and always gossiping on the job, then what ha- it's, it's not demonstrating in any way, tangible way, the beauty of Jesus. It's not making much of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is trying to help us to see that there's a place for all of these things in our lives to make much of King Jesus in all these various roles that God scatters us abroad to be a part of. Hope we see that. It's kind of what Paul is calling us to catch a bigger vision of. So with that, I want to kind of, I put a couple things into a statement. Uh, Hopefully this might make some sense. But the gospel actually provides, and again, to both servants and to masters, which I'll unpack that in just a moment. 
to servants that they have dignity and value in their workplace in spite of challenging masters and duties. So what Paul does is he says to these servants, look, there's a way to have dignity and value in your workplace in spite of the fact you got a jerk for a boss. In spite of the fact you are cleaning countertops or changing soil diapers. There's a way to actually find value and dignity even in the midst of that. So Paul's saying, it doesn't have to be drudgery. It doesn't have to be something that you're always hating. Waking up, you know, in the middle of the night on Sunday night, like, oh my gosh, I gotta go to work in four hours. But the point of the matter is there's a way to view it in a way that becomes a stage to make much of Jesus. The second thing he addresses the masters is that they are to be given this dignity and value in their servants in spite of prevailing cultural prejudices. So let me impact it for you in just a second. Think about this. Are there prejudices uh, resident within our culture that have to do with the type of job you have? In other words, we, we know that for the most part, um, in our culture, we look down heavily upon anybody that judges somebody else based upon their skin color. Right? That, that's, just, that's a given. But is there any type of resident prejudice that's within our hearts based upon the type of job that you have? All the time. So you can be a business person or somebody that you think you have a great job and you walk into a restaurant. Let's say you just have some sort of lowly, you know, waitress serve you and you're, you feel like I can mistreat her I can not give her a, tip, a, a good tip I can stiff her and if you're really horrible you stiff and you leave a track a Bible track and the reality is you justify it by saying ah they're not that valuable what you're basically saying is that they have no value no dignity and what Paul is basically saying to the bosses to the masters no 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 everybody has dignity everybody has value Regardless of the cultural prejudices, regardless of what the cultural tide is constantly telling you and forcing you into its mold to think about other people based upon what type of position they have. Paul is saying that doesn't matter whether you're a field worker or you work on Wall Street. At the end of the day, you have dignity and value because you bear the image of Jesus. Not because you have a certain you know, degree next to your name. Or because you have a certain amount of income in your bank account. You bear dignity and value because you bear the name of Jesus. Or you, you bear the image of God within who you are. That's what Paul is saying. So I want to begin to, first of all, look at a couple things. And we'll, this is basically a two-point sermon. Uh, and that's about it. But I want to, first of all, before I get into the couple points that I want to make with regard to the text, I want to, first of all, look at some historical context. Because I think it's really important to kind of understand what Paul's talking about with regard to uh, servants and masters. Like I said, otherwise, earlier what um, could happen is we tend to kind of put um, our North American understanding of what slaves are upon this text. And then we kind of approach this text in a different way. So with that being said, here's a couple things to think about with regard to a historical context of slavery. One, it was not based on race. Primarily, it was not based on race. I mean, there may have been exceptions to this, but for the most part, most slavery uh, or in servanthood in that particular sense in the first century culture was not based upon race. It wasn't like going into another culture based upon certain, uh, someone's skin color. We are going to you know, bring that tribe of people in and subject them to servanthood or slavery. So for the most part, it was not based on race. Secondly, it was oftentimes like an indentured servanthood, meaning most of these people could have been prisoners of war. So when Rome conquered new territories... They would actually, rather than you know, publicly humiliate or kill or destroy the people, they'd actually bring them into a particular city 
but then make them slaves. And that was sort of a way of basically saying, well, we want you to prove your citizenship or prove that you're worthy, be part of culture and society. And so we are going to cause you to work that off over a certain period of time. If you do a good job, we'll release you. Um, or it's someone that uh, has to pay a debt because they're under obligation. So, for example, in today's culture, the way this is kind of be connected. So let's say, for example, you own a house. In reality, you technically don't own a house. The bank owns a house. If you can't make your payments, um, again, if this was kind of like the first century, the bank would say, okay, uh, you come to work for me because someone owns that bank, and then you now become the servant of that bank. So you might go work for that bank for, you know, next 10 years until you pay your debt off or however long they would suspect it would take for you to earn your way to pay your debt off that you would owe. Um, Another way is that most of the cases, first century slavery was rarely permanent. Again, once you pay your debt off, once you've earned your keep, um, you're free to go. Uh, And finally, oftentimes, actually, again, unlike slavery within here in North America, slaves actually had rights. So there are actual writings in the first century from the first century that would state that if you were a servant or slave and um, you were mistreated by your master, uh, there were certain freedoms that you had been given that you can actually go and uh, bring that complaint to a court and you can go through the process. So the point of the matter is, is that in a historical context, the idea of slavery uh, is, is completely different than what we're talking about in today's context with regard to North American slavery. So why does that matter? Well, it matters because what we're talking about here is probably the closest thing to an employee and employer type of relationship. What we have, for the most part, is kind of a direct parallel, today's culture, with somebody that works for somebody else. There's, a, there's an employee-employee type relationship that Paul is basically laying down. And what, it's kind of been interesting because some scholars have kind of asked the question, you know, why isn't Paul out, you know, battling slavery? Why isn't Paul saying we've got to stop slavery? This isn't good. Because again, like I said, slavery had not reached its oppressive status that it did in North America. Um, Some scholars have actually looked at what Paul had written. And the way that Paul had written this actually sort of set this context on a trajectory to one day bring about the wilting and the dying of modern-day slavery, which is exactly what happened. Because when slavery was then, be, in our country, being challenged and confronted, it was by Christians, people who knew the Bible, people who basically recognized. Now, ironically, uh, in the South as well, there were also Christians that were saying, using these verses out of context and saying, well, the Bible actually condones slavery, therefore, because Paul says, treat your slaves right, Again, the problem is, is that they were um, willfully neglecting the fact that what they were actually doing was oppressive and destructive and dehumanizing to the people that they were overseeing. What Paul is saying is, don't treat people like animals. Treat them with dignity, value, respect, because they bear the image of God. And again, context of what Paul is writing to is radically different than what we see. So, with that being said, here's the two things we'll begin to take a look at and we'll wrap it up. One, we'll take a look at the fact that work is from God, from the Lord. Second thing we'll take a look at is work is for the Lord. So let's first of all take a look at work being from the Lord. Now, in the passage we just read, there's no statement, no verse that Paul comes right out and says, hey, look, all work is from God. So where do I get this from? Well, again, when Paul writes, you gotta understand something a little bit about Paul's history. Paul was a Jew, uh, meaning he was raised up, brought up within historical uh, Judaism which means that Paul had a running, ongoing narrative that he was living his life according to. It was called the the narrative of the Torah. And what that means is that Paul understood things from a perspective, a historical, religious perspective, 
that had always been kind of going on. What he saw is that Jesus didn't come along and make a new religion. What Jesus did is he came along and he restored what had already been being unfolded for generation after generation that had, to some degree, become corrupted. So in other words, what Paul is doing is actually writing from a regular, ongoing narrative, a storyline. And the storyline that Paul would have been writing from would have begun in the book of Genesis. So why don't you guys open your Bibles real quick to the book of Genesis. Go backwards to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. All right, don't, it is on the screen, but um, if you guys are able to use your Bibles, um, I encourage you guys this once in a while. But um, I do put the verse on the screen, want to make things convenient for you, but don't ever want that to become an something in which you just, like, I don't need to read my Bible. Um, otherwise, I will not put the verse up on the screen anymore. Like, like did he just threaten us? That, yeah, that was a threat. Yeah, exactly. Um, just make sure you bring your Bibles. Like, we, we're church. We love God's Word. We wanna, and I don't care if it's on your iPhone. That's fine, too. That's, that's, that's legit. That passes. But just make sure you have your Bibles. Um, so Genesis chapter 2, I want you to understand a little bit of the storyline that would have influenced and impacted and affected Paul the Apostle. Here's what it says. Right after God created... Um, Adam, it says this, and then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden um, to work it and to keep it. Now, what Paul would have known is that when God created Adam and Eve, he would have taken them, put them in the garden, and that Adam had this commission, this goal. And the commission and the goal was to basically take this garden and continue to cultivate it. Um, From the word cultivate, we can actually get the word culture, so when you begin to cultivate something, when you begin to shape it and make it and uh, move it forward and advance it, what you're actually doing is you're shaping culture because that's what culture is. Culture shapes things. Culture is actually creating things that were once or that presently exist, but shaping them into something that is actually suitable uh, for life flourishing in a particular region of the world. It's one of the reasons why we've got lots of different cultures on this planet because God's created lots of very creative people and they approach things differently. And that's God-given. And one of the most obvious things I think is really important to identify with regard to Paul's understanding of this particular point that all work really in this particular context is from God. Now, as a side note, does that mean that every single bit of work is from God? Obviously, there are exceptions. I'll give you one glaring example. There is no way, shape, or form pornography in any way can be viewed as from God at all. Pornography at its heart is exploitative. It takes advantage. It dehumanizes. It destroys. It objectifies. It takes a beautiful woman and turns her into nothing more than body parts. That's all it does. It's for the expense, for the, for the, for the benefit of somebody else who's exploiting her. Guess who, for the most part, runs Pornography rings, men, perverted dudes for the most part that just want to take advantage of women. So this is, it, there's nothing at all with regard to pornography that adds to the flourishing of humanity. So with that as a context, jobs work that works towards flourishing, blessing, bringing life into humanity. It's God-given. Cleaning countertops. It works towards flourishing. Somebody needs to have their countertops cleaned. Flourishing. Cutting someone's lawn. All right, the opposite is a jungle in your front yard. Um, that, you know, when, when lawn's cut, you get kind of happy. You're like, I'm going to go play in the lawn. All right? I'm going to play golf on the lawn or do something. Because it leads, it lends itself towards flourishing and human blessing. So in that respect, what Paul would say is that all of this 
is, is from God. God intended for mankind to use his hands in a way to create culture, to cultivate the earth, to bring about human flourishing and blessing for all people. Now, why that's so significant in a placement of this is because this arises or appears in chapter 2 of Genesis. Why is it important? It's going to sound really obvious. Because it doesn't appear in chapter 3. Some of you are like, what? I still don't get it. All right. Chapter 3, something horrible happened in humanity. All right. We typically call it the fall. Mankind made a choice, made a decision to turn their backs on God. So oftentimes, when we tend to think about or look at work, the narrative. Remember, talk about the narrative. Every one of us has a narrative by which we live our lives according to. Most of us, we're not really aware of the narrative. I'll give you a very clear example of how a narrative could govern you. For example, if you had parents that divorced, and now let's say you're early 20s, 30s, whatever, and you're, you, or you might be newly into marriage, you may look at your life and be like, you know, my mom and dad got divorced, so I'm doomed to have a divorce myself. Or I'm more likely, more prone to have get, or get a divorce because of that happening. What you're basically saying is my mom and dad had a narrative by which defined their life, and therefore, to some degree, I'm, I'm doomed to repeat that narrative. And what the gospel actually comes out and says, no, you don't. You don't need to repeat that. Don't consign that lie to yourself. You don't need to live according to that. You can be free. God can free you. God can change you. You can change your heart. You don't have to be doomed to live your life according to that narrative. There's actually a new narrative by which you can live your life. It's called freedom in the gospel. It's absolutely amazing. It's liberating. It's rehumanizing is what the gospel is all about. And so the point of the matter that, I'm, that I really want to emphasize is that the idea of work did not come after uh, Genesis chapter 3. It came before Genesis chapter 3. And that's important because most of us, when we think of work, we think of work as being a necessary evil. Is it? It shouldn't be. What narrative are you living your life according to? If you live your life according to the narrative of this world, of course it's a, narr- it's a necessary evil. But if you live your life according to the narrative of the gospel that Paul is saying, come into this gospel, this message, this life-liberating, soul-freeing reality. And rather than work being this necessary evil, it becomes this unbelievable platform to make much of King Jesus. To bring you deep satisfaction as you bring about human flourishing in other people's lives. And that is a ministry to serving God. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely revolutionizing what Paul's doing here. He's taking work, and rather than it just being this like horrible, horrific lifestyle that you got to do, that you got to deal with, he's, he's raising it to this unbelievable height and saying, you know how amazing this is? He's restoring it. I don't even know if this is a word. He's re storying it, putting it back into the story, the story of creation, the story that was ruined by the fall, but was restored by King Jesus coming in this world. He's taking work and putting it back into the way that it should work and the way that it should function so that it can bring joy in your life and bring about flourishing, human flourishing, other people around you. It's amazing. It's revolutionizing what he's doing. So that's, that's the end of Point one. So hopefully we all understand that and get that. But again, work is from the Lord. Second thing is work is for the Lord. Now, first of all, what I think Paul is basically saying, because he reiterates himself time and time again, that, um, that the servants are to work as unto God. Masters are to show dignity and justice and value to their servants. 
um, as unto God. What Paul is basically doing is, I, I believe what he's establishing or setting up is that there's actually a chain of command. There's a chain of command. And at the highest point of that command is God. God's at the highest point. Why is that revolutionizing? Why is that significant? Because I'll tell you what. In the first century, what you had is you had the institution of family, you had the institution of marriage, you had the institution of work. And in each of those institutions, you had sort of this concept. So for example, in marriage, you had woman and man. Who is the highest head of control and authority within a family, within the first century, non-Christian context? The man. So let's say the man is a jerk. Let's say the man is oppressive and abusive and rude and takes advantage of his wife and degrading, demoralizing to her. Where does the woman turn to find justice? Nowhere. She's got nobody to turn to. What Paul is saying is that in a Christian marriage, there's a woman, there's a man, and on top of the man is King Jesus. In the family, is the children, is the dad, on top of that, it's King Jesus. In the work environment, you have the employee, servant, you have the master, and over the master, you have King Jesus. What Paul is doing is he's reorienting all this. He's resetting the chain of command. Why is that liberating? Because what Paul is saying is that at the end of the day, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll just jump right in. What Paul is basically going to be communicating and pointing out is that under this chain of command, the gospel actually restores or reorients us towards uh, at least three things. So I'm going to address each one of these uh, one by one. So first, dealing with the servants. Second, then we'll move on to the masters or the, um, the employer, if you want to look at it this way. Employee, deal with the employee first. Then we'll go on to the employee, if you want to think of it that way. So first of all, what the gospel does, it reorients the heart of believers to live out and or show or to demonstrate, uh, if you're a servant, ob- obedience. So this is what Paul says in verse 22. That if you are living with Jesus as the ultimate authority over your head. In other words, you may have a boss. But remember, you have a boss over your boss. It's King Jesus. He always watches you. He's always there with you. Whenever you're mistreated. Whenever there's injustice happening on the workplace. King Jesus sees it. He knows what's going on. He's your savior. He's your God. He will bring about justice in his own time. In verse 22, he says this, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So obedience is one of the elements. You can obey because you know that over again, your boss is a higher boss, a higher master, a greater master, not an evil master, not a wicked master, not an unjust master, but a good master. You can obey him. You can give him your heart. You can obey him. You can trust him. The second thing is it leads to generosity. Verse 22 Again, here's what it says, latter part of verse 22. I'll read the first part again. He says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So again, his his obvious point is that, you know, some of us may only work really hard as long as the boss is watching. As long as the boss is watching. The moment he's there, the moment he walks away, you know, the moment the cat's away, the mice will play, that mentality. Paul's saying that everybody does that. But if you're a Christian... If you are living, reoriented towards the gospel, which means you understand you have a master over you, that you, your master is always watching you. Even if your master that you give account to in the office isn't there or out of the office right now, that you actually have a master that is there watching you all the time. is King Jesus. 
He knows, he sees. So therefore, as a result of that, he says, you can be generous. And he goes on, and he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word sincerity of heart um, actually is translated a couple other times in the New Testament. Uh, Two different ways that word sincerity appears in the New Testament. One of which, it appears uh, in the way of basically... um, being uh, the word simplicity, or another word, the predominant usage of the word is generosity. And so what he's saying, I think, is that when we serve our master, knowing that we have a master over our master, and he's a good master, he loves us, he's incredibly generous with us. He's always watching us, not as some creepy figure that is in middle management that just wants and wishes our doom, but he watches us because he loves us. He's like a dad watching his kid on the playground. He's not consumed with his iPhone. He loves his child. He doesn't want to take his eye off his child. He loves his children. He loves you. And what Paul is saying is because you know that you have a father like this, a God like this, you could be generous. The opposite of generosity is stinginess. But I think even more than that, as I was kind of chewing on this, thinking about this, it's measured generosity. In other words, I think the extreme opposite is stinginess, right? But I think there's something in between where you can be sort of um, measured in your generosity. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us in this room, we know how to be generous, right? Because we know that generosity is a one-way ticket for our blessing. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, we can give money away, we can give our time away, we can give our service away... To the right people, knowing that if we get in connection with the right people and try to wow them with our incredible good working, we actually, we actually might be working toward giving ourselves a promotion. Or a pat on the back. Or appreciation. Or something better. So we know how to be generous. So the issue is not discriminate generosity. It's indiscriminate generosity. Which means, if we understand that we have a Father, a God, who is there over us, watching us, beyond our boss, all the time, and He is an extremely generous God and is always indiscriminately blessing all people. Not because they're good workers, but in fact, Paul's going to say earlier in the book of Colossians that who is it that God blessed? Enemies. Indiscriminately. He just indiscriminately blesses people. Paul says that when the gospel grabs a hold of our hearts and reorients us, we become people that are able to indiscriminately bless other people by way of our generosity. Generosity of our work, generosity of our money. You know what that means? That when you're in a job, you can actually work really hard even though you know that the customers are never going to appreciate you, even though you know your boss is never going to notice you, You can serve with great generosity because you know that you have a father that will bless you. He loves you. I'll give you an example of this. All right? Not, uh, but when I was a young, brand new Christian, um, I was actually a bus boy at Murray Calendars. Like I said, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I was working at a Murray Calendars on Huntington Beach, uh, Beach Boulevard. And, um, okay, if if you've ever been in the restaurant business, anybody work in a restaurant business? Raise your hand. All right. You, You know that, like, one of the lowest scum on the totem pole is not the dishwashers. It's bus boys. Uh, they, they are actually plankton. They are lower than, they are lower than anybody. In fact, 
I, I know this because I can bring a, a, a tray full of dishes back to the dishwasher, and he can, he can look at me and laugh at me and be like, are you kidding? This is not how I want this, and yell at me and make fun of me. And I walk out and just like, oh, I, I failed. I failed the dishwasher. That's, that's a really bad place to be in life. Like, I, I'm, I'm like at the lowest level on any particular job here. So I'll give you two quick stories. One, busboy. So I, I remember one time when I was as a busboy um, setting the table. And, you know, one thing that I realized that no matter how you set a table up, you're always going to get someone to dislike it, whether it be a customer doesn't like it because, you know, you know, there's a piece of cheese, melted cheese on, you know, a, a knife or, you know, your, your server that you're working directly under or directly with doesn't like what you're doing. So they don't really tip you that much or your boss is making fun of you because you're not fast enough or whatever the case is. And, and the reality is it's a very thankless job. So one time I was actually uh, redressing the table, putting, you know, everything set up, the napkin, the fork, and all that type of stuff. And it dawned on me, I'm like, you know, I'm setting this table up for somebody that's probably just going to be a jerk mistreat me, make demands of me that I can't even keep up with, that's going to somehow trickle over to my server being angry with me because I'm not serving his table well and the manager's going to get mad at me. This is a horrible, horrible job. And it just dawned on me. I'm like, you know what? what? What if Jesus were to come sit in this very booth? Would I let there be like crumbs of cornbread hanging out in a booth? Would I be okay with knowing that there's like a piece of like lemon meringue pie you know, like stuck to the bottom of the plate? Like, would I be okay with that? Or would I want to make sure if King Jesus is sitting in this booth, it's going to be set up perfectly? And it reoriented, reoriented the way that I looked at my job. All right, I mean, it didn't like set me forward to say like, you know, I had this wonderful experience for the rest of my life as a bus boy, but it helped, at least for that moment, it helped reorient me. All right, fast forward. When I first moved up here to San Luis Obispo and started a church with my wife, uh, we started off in our house, a little Bible center in our house, and I had to work um, uh, another job because I, I didn't get paid anything here for a good couple of years. And so I worked full time at other, all sorts of jobs. One of the jobs I worked at was, was Albertsons. Now, um, I got a job at Albertsons, not, I, I really was like, ah, oh, it'd be cool to like, be a checker. Like, here you get paid good money, especially working on vacations like, or holidays, you get paid like triple amount. Like, that'd be a sweet job. And so I walk in, and I'm like, I'm looking for a job. They're like, okay, great, you can be a, a, a bag boy. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I, sure, it sounds awesome. Um, so what my job was, was to stand there at the end of the line and say, this is my line, paper plastic, <laughs> paper plastic. And, and it dawned on me after a while, I'm like, this is, this is humiliating. This is a horrible job. Cause if I don't pack people's stuff right and they're walking out of their car and the back breaks, like, like that's me, that's my fault. I can trouble for that. All right. Your people are like there and they got like three items in their bag. You're like, can I get a carry out? Like, dude, you got three items. You don't need someone to help you out. It's ridiculous. Are you doing this just to mock me? This is a horrible job. Here's my point. Again, I remember one night, it was really late. It was like 11.30 at night. I'm out getting all these carts, bringing them in. I'm like hanging out with all the homeless people that are drunk on Saturday night. Like, I hate this job. And then at that moment, I'm just, I just felt like God's saying, are you, are you doing this for me? Or are you doing this for yourself? Because it seems like it's all about you. It seems like it's all about your identity, your value, complaining about how low you are in the totem pole, how disrespected you feel, how horrible a job this is. Are you doing this for you or for me? Sorry, God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally doing this for me. I'm sorry. And the gospel, and it helps reorient my mind to think, what am I doing this for? So the point of the matter is, when you understand the gospel, it helps reorient your ability to be generous. Third thing, excellence. 
verse 23 to 35, 25, it says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It goes on, verse, uh, see, pick it up around verse 25, it says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there's no partiality. I like the way the message actually puts this. The message is one of my favorite translations. Uh, it's more of a paraphrase, but I, I like the way that it used this verse. So just listen to how this verse uh, comes out in the message. It says this, do your best, work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come and do your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And really what he's just simply saying is that you, you can do everything with excellence because at the end of the day, we're serving King Jesus. Not a grumpy boss, not complaining customers, but King Jesus. That's who we're serving. So we can do everything with obedience, generosity, and excellence. And then Paul turns to masters. We wrap this up with this. And he also says to masters, it is basically everything I just said to servants. Probably it also applies to some degree to uh, masters. But more importantly, that Paul focuses on uh, the temptation that masters may degrade into or fall into, which is to look at servants as just being nothing more than uh, dehumanized individuals that they can make fun of or mistreat. And when Paul says, no, 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 what you need to understand with regard to servants, he says his masters treat the slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what Paul does, he actually restores dignity and value between the slave and the master relationship. So what Paul is saying is that if you're a boss, if you're a CEO, if you're an entrepreneur and you started a business, if you're in management and you have people that are under you, Paul says it's not okay for you to mistreat people under you. And one of the ways in which the gospel, again, now does this mean that we'd be perfect? Because look, at the end of the day, if you're ever going to be involved in you know, any type of management role, you're going to start your own business, become an entrepreneur, or these other types of areas where you're going to have people under you that you are responsible for, there will be times you will fail them. Trust me. You will absolutely fail them. You will let them down, just as a dad will let down his children, just as a husband will let down his wife. Again, the chain of command. But when you do, when you fail, one of the most rehumanizing actions that you can take is to say, I'm sorry. It's to go to that person whom you've offended. So if you're a husband, you go to your wife and say, I'm sorry. If you're a dad and you failed your kids, you rehumanize them. You bring them back into a place of value and dignity and honor by sitting them down and sitting next to them, maybe even getting on your knees in front of them and saying, I'm sorry I let you down. I'm sorry I failed. I wasn't a good daddy in this decision. I wasn't a good daddy in the way that I acted here. Or as a boss, I didn't act the way that I should have. I didn't work or fight for your value or dignity the way that I ought to have. That actually is an amazing act of rehumanizing, raising the dignity, raising their value, saying you are valuable. And what Paul is saying is that as masters, treat your servants with dignity and value, justly, fairly. Why? Because you have a master in heaven. So here's a question. How do we get the motivation to do this? So how, Paul says, do all these things out of fear of God or out of extreme respect for God. How, how do we do this? How, if you're, if, you're, if you're an employee, how do you get this vision in your mind, this grand vision, this grand narrative, 
re, uh, restored back into your life, whereby you realize you have a master that's greater than your master, and that's freeing, because I'll tell you what, it frees you from trying to find your identity in your job. If you're trying to find your identity in your job, one of two things will happen. One of two things will oftentimes take place when that will happen, is that success on the job will go to your head. Failure will go to your heart. But if Jesus is your master, what the gospel just did is it reoriented. So your job is not what defines your identity. Jesus is. You're free. You know what that means? You're free to lovingly serve your master, even though he may not be that nice of a guy. You're free to treat with great dignity and value and respect servants, employees, people part of your team that may not be working that great. Why? Paul says, at the end of the day, what we have in Jesus is we have a master who is above all masters. But this master made himself chief servant. This master came to serve. And what Paul is saying, to the degree that you see that we have a master above all masters. What type of a master is he? He's a master that lays aside his rights and his claims to power and authority and tyranny. And rather than using all of his power and authority to rule over you with judgment and criticism and shame and guilt, he lays all that aside to serve you. To take the most lowliest, most humble position and posture of all. To bear your soiled garments upon himself. To the degree that you see that you have a God who is a master of all masters. Who came simply for one reason alone. To serve you. By bearing your sin, your shame. And in exchange giving you an identity. You will never be free. You will try to find your identity in your job and it will either crush you or go to your head. You will become haughty and arrogant and prideful if you do well. If you do poorly, you'll be full of despair. But if you understand the gospel, then you understand that you have a God who laid his life down and gave you a position that you didn't deserve. He served you by taking upon himself your soiled garments in, a, in exchange gave you life. That frees you. So now you can serve your earthly master even if he's a jerk. You know why? Because Jesus served you and you weren't just a jerk. The Bible says that you were his enemy. It's a big difference between being a nasty master or having a bad boss, has a bad temper and being an enemy. Jesus came and served you even while you were still an enemy. To the degree that you see that and you believe that and you trust that and you let Jesus serve you, that will shape the way that you view your job, your vocation, your boss. And if you're boss, how you view your employees under you. It'll change everything. We're gonna finish. Why don't we all stand? What I wanna do is I wanna pray for all of us because the reality is, is that every single one of us will go out and be part of the workforce. Right, if you're not already. Some of you already are part of the workforce. And what I want for us as a church to think about is not to think about ministry in terms of being relegated to a select few people that you know gone through seminary or been you know, identified as good preachers or know how to play a musical instrument, but to view everything that God calls us to, whether it be 
you be a teacher, or an architect, or you know, a landscaper, or you, you know, pick up soiled diapers for a living. Everything has value. Because you have the potential of adding to human flourishing, adding to human blessing. And that becomes a stage upon which you get to make Jesus look great. You know what that means? Every single one of you in this room right now are either in the next 12 hours are going to go out and be a missionary. And you're going to be a great missionary, making much of Jesus in your workplace. You're not going to be that great of a missionary because you're going to just look at job as being a horrible drudgery that you just got to somehow manage your way to get through till five o'clock. And you're going to do that day in and day out for five days in a row, come Friday night, and you're going to start that same drudgery over again, and you're going to find yourself sitting around at age 60 feeling absolutely bored and frustrated and fully disillusioned. Or you can let the gospel reshape the way that you think about your job and see it as a mission field. See it as a platform to make much of King Jesus. I want to pray for us. So what I want to do is, we do this once in a while, um, I want for all of us to lay hands on each other. And you can put your arms around someone, hold their hands if you want, put your arm on their back, you know, whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with. And I want, to, I want for each of you to pray for the person next to you. And here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would make them a good missionary in the vocation, in the job that God calls them. That their life would make much of Jesus. So Maybe we can move across aisles. There you go. You guys, you guys got the idea. Good job. You can do full embrace. Don't, don't let an aisle separate, segregate, because, right, love brings together. Aisles segregate. Don't let an aisle segregate, you guys. Um, pray for the person next to you that they would make much of Jesus in the workplace. That's what the gospel calls us to. I want to pray for you guys. So you can pray right now, and I'll pray over all of you, and then we'll sing you'd like. We have some rugs in front. You just want to get on your face for Jesus. I love some people off the side that want to pray for you. We have communion in the back for you to just remember what Jesus had gone through, what he endured to rescue you, to save you. That his body was bruised and broken so that you who live lives that are bruised and broken could actually be made whole. That's what the gospel is all about. We have a bruised and broken Savior because he chose, rather than to hold on to his rights and authority as a master, chose to become a bruised, broken, oppressed servant so that we can be made whole. God, thank you right now that for this unbelievable opportunity that we have to make much of Jesus in the workplace. God, free us to do that. Holy Spirit, fall upon your people in this room right now. Enable them, equip them, empower them for the ministry. God, all of us, this is, this is not a church with a handful of ministers. This is a church with hundreds of ministers. God, I pray that we would understand that and see that, and begin to live that, and make a huge impact on the Central Coast for the glory of Jesus' name. Let's sing.